Hello and welcome. My name is Matt Peterson and this is episode 4 of History on the Table. Alright, let's get this thing underway. It's Saturday night, my drink is poured, and I've got a lot I want to talk about. Uh, been a little bit since my last episode, but I think I covered that well last time and discussed kind of the irregular nature of this podcast somewhere between monthly and, and bi-weekly, doing the best that we can. Recently returned from a trip to the Bahamas, which was absolutely fascinating, came back and had a Minus 14 wind chill, snow, and all kinds of stuff. But regardless, I'm back, and it's time for another episode. So I'm going to mix things up a little bit. i got a couple new segments. One will be a recurring segment that I'd like to do for the show. And then actually just a couple hours ago, I got home from the Kansas City ASL group, their tournament, which is called March Madness. Uh, I played in the starter kit tournament. Uh, took home a nice plaque, uh, but we'll talk about that later. I'll share my experience and talk about uh, playing advanced squad leaders starter kit. So what I figured we'd move through the normal topics, but I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time talking about them. I've been playing a lot of games, and I'm going to skip over some things. Uh, there's a whole bunch of ASL crap on the shelves now that I'm not going to spend a whole bunch of time going over, but... Uh, my, how things have changed since that first episode where I swore off ASL. But here we are. So let's move into it. Let's uh, let's quit dilly-daddling and just get on with the podcast. So, new things on the shelf. There's just some things that I think are worth mentioning. I don't, I don't know how important this topic is. But there are some games on my shelf that I, that I think are worth pointing out. One of those is something new from... Compass Games, and I have not played it yet. I actually have it set up next to me. I read through the rules, and then I realized how unsoloable this game is. And that's the late unpleasantness. We talked about this last episode. This is the game from the late Steve Rui, who passed away before the game was finished. And this is a point-to-point. This is actually two games, point-to-point, set around uh, Richmond. And so right now, I have Gates of Richmond set up, which is the Seven Days campaign. And so the game itself is actually very straightforward, or the games, I should say. Each game probably has about nine pages of solid rules and then a whole bunch of extra, you know, play examples, designer notes, whatever else they crammed in there. Uh, the The only thing I can really mention so far is there's an events deck or a, a card deck, and I think each player's dealt eight cards, if I remember correctly. And the rule is they can be played at any time unless it's a battle that is a, a continuation. So a die result can result in a battle continuing on. So with the hand of eight cards and cards being able to play whenever without limitation, unless limited by the card, obviously, it, it really isn't soloable. I haven't tried to track down a vassal module. I'm assuming it does not exist, but I, I could be completely wrong. That is without me doing any kind of homework on whether that exists or not. Uh, I did think I mentioned it because the game looks nice. The map is pretty simple. The counters are nice. The cards are nice. All, all that stuff. But I think it'd be a great... Man, it looks like it, it would play really quickly. The thing I'm concerned about this game is the rule that you can play cards whenever you want. Um, I haven't looked at the cards in detail, but if you're holding a, a hand of eight cards, uh, it just seems like 
that just offers up a situation where someone just slams their opponent with card after card after card. And maybe that's not how the cards work. Again, I haven't had a chance to play it. Uh, but I did think I'd mention that because it does look interesting enough. It is something I'd really like to play, and I, I'm willing to bet that this thing, you can knock out a game of this in, in no time. Something else I, I thought I'd mention is I finally picked up a copy of Pavlov's House. Now, I know I've mentioned in past episodes I'm not a... I, I enjoy playing games by myself. That's something I've grown more and more into uh, when I first got into war games and even the board gaming hobby as a whole. I didn't care for playing games by myself. What I found is I like soloing multiplayer games more than I like games designed for solitaire play. Uh, you know, I've I've had a lot of fun with like Ottoman Sunset and, and Chosen Few so that was the uh, that was the little solo chosen reservoir game. I think that's what it was called. That was fun for a time, but I just don't play a lot of solitaire games. But I was interested in this one, and then the designer of the game was actually over on War Games to Go, Mark Johnson's podcast, and that's what sold me on it. I, I was just really interested in the designer's take on the hobby as a whole. I think he provided a nice insight. And so since I was already interested in the game and, and he had some interesting things about to say about board gaming, war gaming, uh, I went ahead and I'll give it a try. Uh, it, it looks absolutely fantastic. The production value of that game is is really nice. If you want to hear more about this game, Advance After Combat just did a review of Pavlov's House and it's uh, it's worth listening to. And they've actually played the game so they can give you some insight. A couple other things showed up. So my first Hexicism games, these are the Eagles of France series, which look absolutely stunning. So I have not gotten a chance to play Lavatai yet. I would like to start that soon, but these may bump in front, just because I think, from what I gather and from what I've read on Board Game Geek and all that stuff, the Eagles of France games are much easier to play. Kind of like a nice intro to that scale of Napoleonics. I think I mentioned in the in the episode where I talked about Labatai, Napoleonics is an era of history that is completely foreign to me. So I'm really excited to start exploring this stuff. I went out and picked up a a book on um, let's see, I guess I guess it's it's the whole Waterloo uh, campaign. So that will cover I think covers Ligny and Quatre Bras, and then of course Waterloo. So the two I got out of that series from Hexicism, Rising Eagles, uh, that's the Austerlitz 1805 game. And then the Ligny 1815 game, Last Eagles. Now, what ultimately sold me on these is Kev Sharp over on the big board. He did kind of like a top 10 video, if, if you can really call it that. It, it was different than a, a top 10. It's worth checking out. He mentioned at least one of these games. I think he might have mentioned both, and I don't remember. But he mentioned uh, he had great things to say about, about these games, and I think they're all around well-received. So at some point, I'm going to crack into Napoleonic stuff. And at some point, I'm going to crack into these uh, deeper Napoleonic games. But probably not. I don't know. So to me, I, I, I think of Line of Battle in like the same scale or complexity. I, I know they're completely different topics, completely different games. But, you know, to take Washington is charging soon. That's the new line of battle game and it's going to be really hard not to dive into that system with the new game so as soon as that thing gets here i may be going in on that pretty hard 
Uh, we'll see. I already mentioned a whole bunch of ASL shit uh, is on the shelves. I've got an ASL dedicated shelf with a little bit of room for my OCS titles now. That is what it is. I do want to mention one other game that... Uh, so there is a small, small, small flea market at March Madness. And I was going through the games. and Well, first funny story. So I walk up to this table and my jaw just drops. I see a stack of all these ASL modules and on top is a box of Rising Sun for 100 bucks. Now, Rising Sun is out of print. And where I think it retailed MSRP for like 165 So I was floored to see, oh, oh, hell yeah, let's do this. 100 bucks. Brought cash with me just in case. Sent a little message out on Rocket Chat. And uh, I said, holy shit, this is a no-brainer, right? Rising Sun for 100 bucks. Send the message. And... Uh, Pick up the box. It's an empty box for a dollar. So it was the Rising Sun box, one dollar. Not the Rising Sun game, hundred dollars. You want to talk about going from six to midnight and then back to six in like no time. Uh, that's exactly what happened. So throughout the day of March Madness, I only, I only went on the Saturday. I didn't go yesterday. I'm not going tomorrow. Um, by the time you hear this, it's, it's probably past that tomorrow. Anyways. So I was going through the games throughout the day, and I walked up, and there was a few, like, SPI stuff. I think there was an old tactical series from MMP. The one game I walked out of there with is this this game called Second World War at Sea, Eastern Fleet. Now, this is a 2001 game from Avalanche Press, designed by Michael Benninghoff. I know nothing about the series, and I think this Second World War at Sea is one of their, like, that seems to be their most popular series they had some other games uh, like panzer grenadier i don't know if those are as popular i just saw that was a series they made so this is a company that existed at some point in alabama they may still exist now i'm i'm completely unfamiliar with them. but this game looks awesome uh most of it is blue squares so apparently it was made in 2001 which doesn't explain the presence of squares over hexes but maybe the rules do and maybe that just works better uh anyways 10 bucks I have no idea what I'm getting into, but it, it does look like quite a bit of fun, and it, it seemed pretty well received on board GameGeek, but maybe that's just because uh, not that many people played it. I think that's about it for, for what I want to mention. I don't want to spend a whole bunch of time on talking about games that I know nothing about because I haven't got a chance to play them yet. A couple other things. Um, the Hamtag guys, they put out a, an old video they had recorded and hadn't put out on their top American games. And so you can expect a lot of Revolutionary War games. One of those was Washington's War. I'm sorry, Washington's Crossing. Uh, I mentioned that because that transitions into the bookshelf. So what am I reading? A uh, book I started, Washington's Crossing by David Hackett Fisher. Uh, I don't know, I'm a little, I'm about 20% into that book. And it's it's really well written. And the reason I picked it up is because Judd Vance recommended uh, Washington's Crossing, which seems like a really well-received game. To me, it sounds a little bit like Great Campaigns of the American Civil War, and I think Greg from the Hantag guys made that that link. But how I've heard it described, it seems like there's a lot of a lot of similarities or enough similarities to, to draw that conclusion. Anyways, uh, as he talked about the Washington's War game, which is from Revolution Games, he mentioned this book, which he had a lot of high praise for. And I will say, it's really well written. It's it's a lot of detail. It's been nice so far. It's uh, it's had a section on each army, so. It, it talked about, oh, so far it's talked about the, the British Army, uh, common troops, common equipment, 
how they how they reacted, how they behaved, that kind of thing. And then same thing with the Hessians. Uh, give a little bit of background of like why the hell were the Hessians even there, which uh, that's something I didn't know. So I, I do recommend it. Like I said, I'm only about 20% in, but I've enjoyed I've enjoyed what I read so far. I did wrap up Enemy at the Gates by William Craig. For an arbitrary rating, again, I gave it a five on Goodreads, maybe a four, four or five. Either way, it was great. It was very gruesome. Um, there was a lot of fucked up shit in that book. Shit with humans, obviously devastating. Shit with animals, that was devastating. I was really eye-opening. I think the only thing that I would critique the book, and I think this may be based off the time period and based off the source material open to Craig. Sometimes it seems like he goes out of his way to, I don't know if he's going soft on them or humanizing them, the Germans. So the book takes this narrative approach where kind of the first third, first half maybe is kind of the Russian perspective. So as the Russian, as the Germans push the Russians to the Volga and just to make, about take Stalingrad, it's almost the Russian point of view. And then <clears throat> once the once that happens, once the Russians start to encircle the Germans, it kind of switches. So now now a lot of this the stories and things going on are more German focused. And I, I guess I understand why he did it, but I guess that'd be kind of a critique. It, it didn't really take away anything from the book, but I, I thought it was odd. But you can take that information and, and do with it what you please. Overall, the book was great. East Front isn't an area I'm strong in. It does make me really want to play some East Front games. Uh, it makes me even more excited for Mark Simonich's Stalingrad title, which I mentioned last episode. But it was very, very gruesome. But man... There are, like, obviously I knew, like, Hitler went off his fucking rocker. But there's a lot I learned about how bad the Germans just wanted to get the hell out of Stalingrad before they got cut off. And the German high command, i.e. Hitler, just refused to do anything. And that was eye-opening. I know he did all kinds of fucked up shit, obviously, but from a command perspective... Uh, that was an, that was interesting to me. Uh, highly recommend the book. It's a classic, so it's not like I'm providing any new information. Speaking of Mark Johnson and War Games to Go, I think that's his next topic is East Front. I know he was reading Enemy at the Gates or read Enemy at the Gates, so I'm sure he'll talk about that book in his uh, next podcast. Uh, I'm still, still working through uh, the Frederick Douglass Prophet of Freedom book by David Blight. Um... It's gotten a little bit better, so we kind of moved into, like, up through... So his childhood was really interesting. And his post-escape, or pre, pre-escape from sla- slavery life, so his life during, during slavery, and immediately after was really interesting. But then it's kind of like, from this author's perspective, for the next 20 years, he, he kind of just gives a bunch of speeches. And you can only say that so many times before you, you got to come up with a new way to be like, oh, he gave another speech. And it's interesting in the, in the struggles he had, uh, but I've, I've gotten a whole new interest now because there's the relationship with John Brown, the events leading up to Harper's Ferry. He went there right before the raid and, and met with John Brown. That stuff's really interesting. I'm right at the, basically, South Carolina has seceded, 
And so that stuff is really interesting just because I, I wasn't as interested in the, you know, like the, the, the speech tours he went on through, through Ireland. I, I think his struggles and his experiences were I've this grip, this book has kind of roped me back in. I'll keep plodding along with it. It's, it's okay. It's pretty good. I haven't given up on it. So that's worth something. All right. That's enough about books. Let's go to what I've been playing. I kind of did some highlights here because I've been kind of all over the place with what I've been getting on the table. Pretty high quality gaming lately. Uh, we took another turn, a couple turns in Korea Forgotten War, the OCS title. I, I cannot begin to exaggerate enough how bad my die rolls were. Like, I'm glad I got all of those shit rolls out of the way before I went to this ASL tournament because, like, there's not even going to be a Korean War if I don't do anything because the Koreans aren't really even pushing that hard. It is interesting. So, <clears throat> the South Korean UN player, Paul, has... Basically pushed everything up to the Wanju line, which basically runs east from Seoul and south. If I'm able to push through that line and push quickly, there is very little between me and Pusan. So if I can get a breakthrough, I could really do some damage and put myself in a, in a nice position for later turns. The problem is, is I cannot do shit. Just casualties after casualties in, like, one little group of guys is holding out on this hedgehog. I don't even re I don't remember what town they're holding, but it's like, Christ, I cannot punch through those guys. But the game's great. The more and more, and there's still a lot of OCS that I have to learn. I don't have the rules down. Perfect. But as I continue to play that series, OCS is quickly becoming one of my favorite war game series. So many cool things you can do, and each game has its own flavor. It's it's great. If you haven't gotten a chance to play OCS yet, I, I highly recommend it. The rules are in like their fourth version now, and there's no reason they're not that bad. You could dive in and, and working with an experienced player, you could learn a lot. Just just start going after it. I it's well worth the the time investment to learn those rules and play those games. So our Blitzkrieg Legend game has been postponed uh, because my vacation and then uh, the other player was gone last week and then this week I canceled for the ASL tournament. And so uh, one of the guys I play with, we met up instead last week to play Bloody April, which is a World War One aircraft game from GMT. It's called uh, Bloody April Air War over Eris France. And this is a air game based off of the system designed for elusive victory in downtown and there's a new one coming out i think it's called like red storm so my die woes continued in this game and i've, I've bitched about this a lot on board game geek and let me tell you how fun it is to play an air combat game where your airplanes don't even get to fire their guns once for a eight hour game seven hour game i don't remember how late we played but uh started at 10 ish went past five i think yeah, uh, so, I don't know, probably a handful of dogfight engagements, uh, combat engagements, and my guns just failed every attempt to even fire a shot. But, even with having terrible combat results, the game was interesting, and I really enjoyed flying the missions. 
So how that game works is before the game starts, each player plots out their missions. And and some missions, you don't have to do a whole lot of planning. Let's say you're running a patrol. It'll give you two hexes to run that patrol between, and you basically are more or less required to run, a, from my understanding, run a straight line between those points. And then you return to base, and if you complete the mission, you get points. Sometimes you have to take pictures. And so it says, all right, go take 10 photos of hexes between this range, and you plot out where you're going to take those photos. And that was really fun. The, the, uh, this game was more tactical than I thought it would be. The, but the tactical movement of point to point and running your missions and flying over the trenches was really enjoyable. My complaint with this game and with talking with Rex, who I played with, I, I, I'm almost certain he'd agree based off our conversations. It is fiddly as hell. And sometimes fiddliness is, is okay. I, I can work past it most times. Except it really felt like a chore. A lot of things, like if I wanted to engage in combat or see how combat played out, it's like, oh man, we got to go through a lot of steps. And they're not, they're not that intuitive. At least it didn't feel that way to me. Now, I think... If you invested time in this game, you could really get a lot out of it. Like I said, it, overall, it was fun. But here, here's my big takeaway. This game would be ten times more fun if you're flying jets and, like, launching missiles at each other and zipping around the map and, like, blowing shit up. Which you're not really doing here because you're flying, like, little biplanes. And that can be frustrating I, for example, you can be one hex away from the end of your patrol zone, take a flak shot, not take damage, and your freaking pilot gets so scared of that flak that he's like, oh, that's abort. Even if abort means flying through the hex you need to go through to go land your plane, like the last hex. It was so frustrating. I was like, I'm going to fly through the hex as I abort this whole mission anyways. Like, I think we could just call it a win, but it was fine. It... It's, they did some weird things like, uh, the informational counters are double-sided. And so you're constantly like, oh, where's that? Like flipping over shit that you would normally be using in the game to try to find like a, a takeoff marker or something like that. But let's summarize bloody April. I enjoyed the tactical flight of your planes and like taking off and shit. That was cool. And the movement, I didn't, wasn't crazy about moving between these planes. Don't climb an altitude very quickly so you got to spend a lot of time especially on some of those other some planes take fucking forever to climb we played with the endurance rules don't that was just so meticulous basically there's an optional rule where your your plane can break down over time basically every time you take a flight you keep track of tally marks but and i i get why they do it rex explained it well so, for example, my planes had 90 endurance. They go fly out. Well, fuck, they could, they could fly, run their patrol, and get back and do it at full speed and never get close to their endurance. It's like, well, why am I keeping track of this? But, uh, so the German player launches their aircraft in response to the British player, at least in this scenario. So if the German player launched, it prevents him, I guess, from launching as soon as the Brits cross the trench line. And just staying in the air, hovering like hawks. Uh, because if they stay airborne too long, their, their planes will break down. That's that's how he explained it. That makes sense. But it felt really tedious. I would not play with that rule uh, unless you're a really big fan of the game. 
But if you're a really big fan of the game, then uh, what are you listening to me for? So uh, overall fun, but let's like let's throw in some fucking fighter jets and, and blow some shit up, right? Okay, I didn't mean to jump forward to Bloody April. I did play another Korea game. It's kind of on the exact opposite end of the spectrum. I played Hold Fast Korea with Jason over from AAC, and I may have mentioned this last episode. This was a pretty fun game. It's a Dice of Buckets, uh, Worthington Block game. Not a lot of rules. Like, super low rules overhead. Maybe like six pages of rules and like <laughs> wide margins, you know? Not a whole lot of stuff packed in there. You just kind of move and uh, attack. You basically get uh, activation points you can spend on your units to either bring in as many reinforcements as you want as long as they're in su your units are in supply or uh, move and attack. What impressed me most about this game is it was able to capture the flavor, the historical feel of Korea with such a rules low rules overhead. So North Koreans come storming in. They they don't quite make the Pusan perimeter. This is our game, right? This is the game we played. Marines do a landing. I landed on the east side of the peninsula and the west uh, with with the army, and pushed like hell to the Alu River. Came up a couple of hexes short of an automatic victory, and then the commies, the the Chinese, come storming onto the map. I retreat like hell because I don't want to be cut off. And basically set up on the 38th parallel, which is great. It was really cool that it was able to... That is Arcade saying hello. Uh, it was cool that it was able to to, to capture that feel with so, so few rules. The problem is, is you both set up on the 38th parallel, and this is such a zoomed out perspective. Like, this is a strategic scale. I mean, this is super broad scope. Well, like, the whole 30th parallel is, like, only five hexes across. So there's not a lot of ton of maneuvering you can do. The U.S. UN player has has a few more options, right? Because they can do, like, naval landings and stuff. But you really kind of have to get creative, and you really kind of have to hope for blowing a hole in the line. Just because, just you know, there's only five hexes, and both of you have jammed your armies up in the line. That being said, great introduction game. Great game for beer and pretzels. You know, have some drinks, just hang out, and you just play, chit-chat. I mean, it doesn't require a whole lot of focus. Um, there's some die roll modifiers, but even terrain is really simple. From what I've gathered when I when I went and looked at the Holdfast series, the Holdfast games are, are pretty hit or miss. I think people really like the Russia game, and people really don't like the North Africa game. The Korea game seems to fall in between as being okay. And I think I'd agree. I haven't played the other ones. I think what I would say is Hold Fast Korea probably doesn't have a whole lot of replayability. Just because of the limited landscape and the lack of maneuverability, um, there's only so many strategies you can try out especially as the communist player, because you don't have the option of amphibious landings. So you can only try to storm into South Korea so many different ways when you're only five hexes across. But anyways, I think I've made my point. Okay, another game I'll mention is Genesis, and I don't have a whole lot to say because we've only played one turn. We're doing a four-player game. I took the Babylonians, and I think my point that 
how I feel so far is this game is fantastic. First off, I was reading the rules and I was like, oh man, this all of this stuff sounds really interesting. From how losses are determined and just you have this civilization, just go out and do with you. Now, this isn't a Civ game. You're not, I don't know, you're not researching technologies and stuff, but you do have this civilization where you're building an army and you can focus on your little area. You can be really aggressive. We're playing a four-player game and it's like first night. I, I just thought we'd all kind of expand into the city-states, the, the independent territories and not really be aggressive. But uh, Jonathan attacked the other Jonathan on like the first night. I was like, holy hell, like I was going to be kind of nice and just slow play this and not make any enemies. But yeah, that it did not take long for our game to ramp up. But so things I like about this game, how the losses are calculated is really interesting. So losses are percentages. So if I roll a six and you roll a five, I deal 60% damage to you. You do 50% damage to me. But the die roll modifiers are whoever has the most die roll modifiers adds and subtracts as they see fit. So I roll six, you roll five, and let's say I have four DRMs. Okay, I can drop you to 10%, six to one. Uh, I can bump myself up to 100%, but you're still at five. And so you're weighing these results. Okay, if I, if I get to 80%, that's enough of a round up where I eliminate all of his troops. But that means I need to spend 20% on me. Well, shit, that only bumps him to 30%. That's going to knock out three of my troops. And I didn't think it was going to be the case. The other guys kept saying so. Money is tighter than I thought it was going to be in this game. I think the Babylonians are in a little bit better position. Poor Jonathan, the aggressor, got hit with like uh, ties to the goddess because you pissed her off. So pay a bunch of gold on turn one, which really hamstrung him. But he seems to be have faith in how he'll do as he's already on the offensive. Anyways, Genesis is really neat. That's a uh, Richard Berg game. Always mix up the Berg Borgs. So that's a Richard Berg game. It's like Pax Romana, except uh, from what I gather, it's a little bit easier. You can actually take the Pax Romana rules and just play Genesis or not, uh, you can use the Genesis rules. I've not read Pax Roman up, but I, I, I like this a lot. The whole time I've been playing, my second takeaway is I am making the decisions I wanted to be making when I played Time of Crisis. They're completely different games. I get that. I like the deck building aspect of Time of Crisis. I like deck building games. But Time of Crisis forces you into this caring about what the hell's going on in Rome. I get that. That's the point of the game. But I... I set up like in a, a similar area, you know, east coast of the Mediterranean, excuse me, eastern shore of the Mediterranean. It's like the Canaan area, that that kind of stuff. I, I kind of just wanted to hide out down there in my hidey hole when I played Time of Crisis and, and not really care what's going on in Rome and just focus about me. But you're almost forced. I guess I guess you can kind of set up the, if I remember right, you can kind of set up the, the throne or the crown or whatever, wherever. But right now in Genesis, like, I can just hang out and I can just worry about me and my surroundings and just build. And and I like that. I'm, I really like the decisions more in this. Okay, so had a little slight interruption. Got two dogs. And anytime uh, one of us comes home, they lose their mind. And so my wife just got home and our kid and Rosie decided to let the whole world know. So whatever I was talking about Genesis... Uh, great game. Highly recommend it. I, I guess you could start with either Genesis or Pax Romana, but what, from what I've heard, and I think the players, they said the same thing, and then 
Uh, some of the guys I, I played with said uh, Genesis is supposed to be a little more streamlined. Great game. Oh, I think I was talking about the, the turns. Ten turns in the full campaign. Each player is taking at least four actions with their civilization, and they might control some minor powers or barbarians depending on the uh, the cards that come up. So, yeah, I think about ten hours is, is probably accurate. Uh, we got through a turn in a, a couple hours, but we were chatty and we're all new to the game. So, yeah, check it out. The other thing I've been playing that I want to talk about is Advanced Squad Leader, but what I thought I would do is just kind of couch this discussion in an overall discussion of Kansas City's ASL tournament, March Madness. So Kansas City's been hosting a Advanced Squad Leader tournament for some time, much longer than I've been in the board gaming hobby, hell, let alone war games. And they usually they design a, a map pack for it and some scenarios and all that stuff, so that, that was cool to see. Overall, just just general broad impressions of the tournament. This is my first, other than like a store Netrunner tournament, this was my first tournament tournament going to. I was really impressed. Everyone I talked to, I didn't talk to everyone that was there, seemed really helpful, really inviting. I know that ASL players get this <coughs> kind of grumpy Grognard vibe, or they get no, they don't get that vibe. They get that reputation. I did. I didn't get that vibe from anyone at, at that tournament. Even the people I didn't talk to, they, they seemed welcoming and inviting and just really helpful about ASL as a whole. Hell, there was like a an eight or nine year old kid, maybe younger, playing full ASL and here I am playing starter kit. So it's like, okay, maybe it's uh, time to kick off these training wheels. So yeah, I did play in the, I went on the one day, the Saturday and it was hosted at a little Holiday Inn here in Kansas City, and I went to play in the Starter Kit mini tournament. The winner of the Starter Kit tournament got a plaque and a copy of the rules, and I was the winner, but, and now I'll tell you the truth, I was the winner because there was only two of us playing in the tournament, but you better freaking believe that that plaque is now hung up and on display, because it's a pretty dope plaque. So they had prizes. I think how the real tournament worked is you played two games on Friday, two games on Saturday, one day on Sunday, and then all these, like, mini tournaments designed. So, like, they gave away packs for, uh, like, I don't know, they called it, like, a, I don't know, Desert Mini or something like that. And whoever won that won a Desert uh, Scenario pack or something like that. They had a raffle. There was probably, I don't know, 30 no, probably not that many. 20 people there playing the, the full tournament. Two of us playing the uh, starter kit tournament. And then the hosts, uh, Dan Best and Paul. They seem to really put on a great, intimate tournament that a lot of people like to come to. Great people all around. It did make me want to attend some more tournaments. And so there's there's three of them that I know are coming up that have all drawn my attention at different times. Uh, one of that's DC's Conscripts. Uh, probably, that one's probably out of the question. One, it's on my birthday weekend, and we've already got plans, so that one's out. There's one in Austin, I believe it's called the Texas Team ASL Tournament. They have a starter kit tournament. That is at the end of June. That's a possibility. The other one, which seems much more likely, is a St. Louis tournament at the end of July. I think it's the last weekend of July. I didn't get the name of the tournament, but uh, the gentleman who runs it was there. 
And I think they work a lot with the Kansas City group. And he mentioned that a lot of the people that were at the Kansas City group will go to the St. Louis group or St. Louis tournament. Sorry. Uh, he said, just uh, just Google St. Louis ASL gamers or something like that. And it, and it should come up. So I got to play a couple games of starter kit. One was this. Um, it was an Aachen scenario. I should have written down these names if I, if I was a, if I was a good podcast host, I would I would do homework like write down scenario names and write down rules, so I don't say shit like this. Um, but it was an Aachen scenario. I I took the Germans, and uh, it started out. First off, I feel terrible for my opponent Wayne. I played with Wayne all day. Wayne was a great a great guy, and uh, he said he's been buying ASL for a long time. But he's now finally getting to the point where he can start playing the game. So he's been going through the starter kits. Uh, Wayne was great. He was a great person to play games with. But <laughs> our die rolls could not have been polar opposite, more polar opposite. So all of my past die troubles were gone. I was rolling fours and threes and fives just out the wazoo. It seemed like every time I needed a clutch roll, boom. And then he'd set up like a 20-point attack and get like, you know, up three. So plus three DRM and roll like a 10 and get no results. And I had a lot of die luck in my favor all day against, against Wayne, but he was a great support about it. And so the first scenario we played took us a long time to get through, but it was a lot of fun. Uh, basically the Germans can fortify two hexes and the U S has to, I think capture 25 building hexes by the end of the, the round. It looked like, I had it in the bag and then Wayne got some really strong turns and it just turned into this grinding, brutal, just bloody, a lot of back and forth and a lot of really intense moments that if, if he was just able to push through and just get through my lines, I'd have to change my whole strategy. And it was just this tense, you know, right on the edge. Um, just the whole, I don't know, second half of the game. Uh, that was a really enjoyable experience. Uh, that was the one I ended up winning for the tournament. And then we played this other scenario that Wayne had. Similar situation, except a lot smaller scenario. The U.S. has to capture 15 hexes. There's basically two roads. They basically, I don't know, they set up about eight hexes away from each other. And it's it's not very wide. And so the German player basically runs from map edge to map edge uh, or is close to being able to do so and that that was an interesting one because he basically had this wall of german defenders uh that would have been nearly impossible to burst through without like cleverly using smoke and and suppressing uh the enemy with prep fire before before moving on and what i ended up being able to do is distracting all of his units kind of south of the north map edge drawing all their fire to the south and then i ran three guys along the north edge around and got behind so basically that um <clears throat> surrounded his units and the goal of the american players is to go capture building hexes so those three guys could just run around in his back lines capturing objectives which forced him to turn around deal with those guys and allow my guys uh, west of his front line to, to finally start grabbing some ground, which would have been really hard to do otherwise. 
Now I say all this like I'm a master tactician, but it didn't work. I, I was in a super strong position until the last round and he really came back masterfully and, and did some, some made some nice decisions and it all came down to a, a close combat role, which I won, but I did not completely eliminated the la- eliminate the last guy I needed to to capture the building hexes and I ended up with 14 of the 15 points. Uh, Wayne and I both agreed we were talking about the scenario afterwards that kind of started out boring like oh man these these Americans are just going to run forward and then it's just going to be a a wall where we're firing back at and forth of each other but finding the way to get around the Germans and then forcing the Germans to respond to the Americans that are now in their back line really made it a much more exciting scenario than we both uh, anticipated so if you couldn't gather from that, I'm I'm quite excited about playing ASL. <clears throat> I'm not going to go into a rules explanation uh, of ASL because I don't I don't think it would do any good. Just broad picture, or I guess a limited rules overview for people unfamiliar with the advanced squad leader system. I'll talk a little bit about the starter kit, um, and remember this is it's just. Just limited to the starter kit, there's main uh, main ASL rules I'll be leaving out. Basically, each side gets a turn as the attacker. And you run through the phases of you rally your troops. The attacker can do prep fire. Uh, preparation fire is basically, all right, you're not going to move this turn. You're going to sit and you're going to fire. You attack at full strength, but you're not going to move during the movement phase. Uh, and so... After prep fire, the attacker starts moving, and the defender basically, how it, the main kind of back and forth of ASL is as the de- attacker moves, the defender can interrupt movement and say, all right, I'm going to take a shot, because, and this takes a little bit getting used to when you switch from something like U.S. Civil War, Normandy 44, Battle Him, ASL, each turn is just a matter of minutes or, or seconds, or I don't remember the exact scale, but it's it's now, it's like, Right, that guy's running. Stop! I'm gonna shoot. It's not, you know, a month. So your react, the decisions you make are all reactions to what your opponents are doing. Okay. So as the attacker moves, the defender's taking shots at them. Okay. And then there's you go to the defender phase, the defender fire phase, where now the defensive, the defender gets some defensive fire. Okay. That troop ran forward. He made it in that building, and now the defender, you know, they aim and they fire at them and. Uh, then you get like close quarters combat and route phase. So, you know, oh, those guys took, you know, heavy machine gun fire and they ducked for cover and their morale's busted and they need to hightail it to cover. That's the only thing they're worried about right now. So you're, so you're doing things like that. And how, how you resolve hits in ASL is you roll a die and you compare it to the... Uh, the infantry fire table and you get all these drms but you break units and so if you if you uh if you roll well you can cause them to take a morale check if they fail that morale check they have something has caused them to um you know either take cover so for example it may be like all right i'm firing on these americans that's successful fire well the americans instead of you know popping their heads out they're dunking down for cover and so that's, that's changed their battle state. That's kind of how I, I would say that that's what uh, breaking uh, represents. 
Or if you're really successful, well, then you can reduce, you can inflict the casualties, and you you take your full squad counter and you swap it out with a, a half squad, so they'll be a little less effective and that, that type of thing. And there's all kinds of other stuff with uh, different types of movement, and uh, you can get like mortars and then tanks and, and all that stuff. And start to get two and three, and then there's full ASL where you add all kind of cool shit like ski troops, and you can run between buildings, and you can have Fucking Russian leaders shooting the guys that failed a rally, which sounds outstanding, and snipers, and all this cool shit. That's basically the rundown of ASL. I like it. I, I like it a lot. You know, when I when I set out in episode one and two, I'm gonna I'm gonna take a look at all these tactical war games. Uh, I was really high on uh, Band of Brothers, and I was telling Rex, I think it was Rex. We um. We popped his ASL cherry with a starter kit. I think it was him I was telling that I don't know why I would go back to Band of Brothers. The starter kits aren't aren't that bad at all, especially if you're playing with someone who knows the system and can teach it. You can get through it. There's not that much more to teach, really, than Band of Brothers. Now, Band of Brothers has a lot less little exceptions and weird, you know, so like ASL, if you roll certain ways, something will happen. Like if you roll boxcars, well, that's usually really bad. So if you're doing a morale check, you roll boxcars. Oh, not only did you break, you also took uh, a casualty. So you have to keep in consideration things like that. You don't have those kinds of considerations in Band of Brothers, so there's less exceptions to the rule. But basically, the game plays the same way. There are so many similarities that where Band of Brothers is drawing from ASL. Also, to me, the more I think about it, the Band of Brothers hit resolution is not as intuitive as ASL, or maybe it's not as interesting. Band of Brothers hit resolution should be simpler, but it still stumps me every time I play. You just, you roll and you compare it to the unit's morale, and it, it just always trips me up. Something about ASLs just feels much more interesting to me, and I enjoy it much more. And so that leaves me like, well, why would I ever go back to Band of Brothers? Because ASL is, at least right now, uh, the far superior system with a starter kit. And I think I think I could get this. Now, Band of Brothers probably plays quicker. It certainly plays quicker. Uh, I kind of way underestimate the time it takes to play an ASL starter kit. Like... Because I'm used to Band of Brothers. So it's like, oh yeah, we can knock one of those out in a couple hours. And it's like, okay, teaching someone that first scenario of ASL. And when I first played it, like, probably three and a half, four hours at least. And that that wouldn't be the case with Band of Brothers. The other thing is I have successfully taught Band of Brothers to someone who's never played a Hex Encounter war game before. They played board games. They played miniatures. And I didn't pick up the game in nine months. And I was able to quickly read through the four pages of rules or whatever and do that intro scenario with them and at least get them enough to get going. I don't think you could do that with ASL. But if you asked me today which one I'd play, if you said, hey, you want to play this or this, it's going to be ASL Circuit. It's really good. I, I, get, I get the love for the hobby. The scenarios are fun. Both games are exciting. They both tell great stories. But everything just makes sense in ASL. Like, 
I, I get why that's happening. And you get that a lot in Band of Brothers too. Band of Brothers is a great game. I'm not getting rid of my copy anytime soon. But maybe someday down the road, I still got some work to do. I still need to progress through the starter kits. I've only played six or seven games of the starter kits so far. I'm far, 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 far from any kind of expert or knowledgeable about the ASL system. But right now, I can tell you, I'm having a hell of a lot of fun with the ASL system. And I, I hope I've made that clear without rambling too much. I, I know I've rambled on about it. Uh, but just give it a go. That that starter kit one is so much bang for your buck. Like 11 pages of rules, 7 scenarios, 6 scenarios, something like that. And they're fun. They're not like... Just half-assed scenarios. That War of the Rat scenario is great. The Aachen scenario I played, there's two Aachen scenarios. Scenario 3 was fantastic. Scenario 4 is like snow. Like if it starts snowing, then you get like long-range shots are even less effective. There's so much to explore. I get it. Do not be intimidated by it. You know, I, I started this whole podcast in episode 1. I mentioned I'm new to this hobby relatively new compared to everyone else who's been playing. I've only been doing war games for two years, three years, whatever. Um, and I have so much to learn. And ASL for me for so long was this unattainable, I'm never going to have time for that. That's way too complex. And you know what? Main ASL might be. I haven't started reading those rules. But ASL Starter Kit is a hell of a lot of fun. And for 20 bucks, you get a shitload in that box. I highly recommend it. If it's something you want to try out and you want to take the time and go through the Vassal module with me, I'll be happy to teach uh, teach you the game. You'll have to bear with me. I'm not an expert, uh, but we'll get through it together. So please hit me up. If you want to play a game, gladly, let's do it. HistoryTablePodcast at gmail.com. And I owe a giant amount of thanks to Chris Brooks, who is a user on Board Game Geek and a listener of this podcast. He reached out to me and said, hey, I, uh, I, I heard you want to give ASL Starter Kit a go. And he offered to walk me through those first couple scenarios. So we played a few games now, um, first couple scenarios, and he was instrumental in, in guiding me through my first play of the Starter Kit. So shout out to Chris. He was a big help in getting a few games under my belt. And I look forward to uh, future plays with him. And that reminds me one other comment about the tournament. Uh, and I kind of alluded to this war gamers get this stereotype of being grumpy. The ASL, not only the war game, the, I, I mentioned, I know early on that the war game hobby uh, side of the hobby is super helpful. Always willing to teach ASL players are super helpful. So many of those people at that tournament, hey, you, we have a rule. We don't we don't know what we're doing. We're just playing starter kit. They were able to help us out and just, oh, yeah, just come and come to our game days and play. You'll get better by just playing more. And everyone seemed happy to teach. I mean, they had the a game like ASL, the patience. I mean, it can be difficult to teaching a game system to a child. I get that. But imagine that with ASL. And this kid was having a blast. At least it appeared to me. I, I didn't talk to him. I guess my point is I was really impressed with the openness of this crowd and the, the willingness to be friendly and introduce new people to uh, 
to the ASL hobby. I was very impressed with the tournament, and obviously I'm very impressed with uh, the game system. Okay, so, rambled on enough. Okay, we have this new segment. I'm really excited about this. I'm still trying to come up with some kind of clever-ass name, and I do want to give credit where credit is due. So before I got into wargaming, or, or not before, even during, I'm, I'm a bit of a comic book reader, and I haven't... I don't keep up with it as much as I used to. I used to have a pull list, but I just, you know, if a story is good enough, I'll hear about it and read it then. Still love comics. I, I just don't need to keep up with it every week. Anyways, I used to really be in a comic book podcast. One of those podcasts was War Rocket Ajax, which has achieved much more success than I'll ever achieve. And uh, whether you like the guys or not, I always enjoyed their segments of every list ever. And the whole concept was, all right, we've made this list, and uh, we'll take user submissions for every single comic book story ever. So whether it's a single issue, a six-issue arc, or 30 issues, and we're going to rank them. And it's going to be this great back and forth of where do these games line up. And I always enjoyed it. It was some of my favorite episodes they did. They did it once a month. Well, that's what I'm going to do with War Games. Now, I don't have a clever-ass title like every story ever. But this is going to be the definitive, most objective, most well-rounded ranking of every single war game ever made, ever. And I'm going to do it with your help. And by objective, I mean it's going to be completely subjective. But I'm going to carefully weigh every single war game ever. Now, here's the caveat. I have to play these. Uh, so we'll be working on this for a long time. Will we ever get to ever? No. But I think we'll have a lot of fun. And so what I always found interesting about that is you get people shooting for the top, right? But then the the more interesting stuff is, all right, let's, let's shoot for the bottom of the list. And so what I thought I would do this episode is I'm going to set the boundaries, all right? So I'm going to set the top of the list for now, and I'm going to set the bottom of the list. And then what I'd like to do is each episode is take a game, whether it's a, a game I've recently played, or maybe it's a game I've already reviewed, or maybe it's a user submission. So if a user writes in, or not a user, a fan, or a listener of the podcast writes in, says, hey, check this game out. Here's why this game is the best game ever, or the worst game ever, or why it's better than Normandy 44, but it's worse than ASL, whatever. I'd love to hear reasons. And you know what? If you make a really compelling argument, I'd love to have you on the show, and you come tell me why I'm wrong, and why your game is the best game ever, and you and I together will find a spot for that game on this list. So let's start. Like I said, we're going to come up with some grand-ass title, you know, but this is the definitive list of every war game ever made, ranked from top to bottom. So let's start at the top. Now, there is no doubt in my mind that the best war game I've ever played is Mark Simonich's 2015 masterpiece from GMT Games, The U.S. Civil War. Now, I've been saving my review of the U.S. Civil War until after my upcoming play, just to refresh myself on everything. But a couple things that this game has going for it. One, some of the best damn map art you'll ever see. The United States looks stunning in that map, and it's just great. Two, and I've mentioned this, that game constantly delivers a fantastic gaming experience every time I play. Just the stories, the decisions, everything is a blast. I love the tactical decisions you can make in that game, both as a Union player and as a Confederate player. 
you know, as a union player, where where do you want to go on the offensive? You have so many options. Do you focus on the Western theater? Do you try to be aggressive and take Richmond? Where do you launch your amphibious landings? Do you do you just focus on cutting off Confederate supply, or do you take New Orleans and, and try to take the Mississippi? The Confederate player, all right? When do you go on the offensive? And where do you go? When does Lee try to move on Washington? I mean, what about shooting up through West Virginia? There's so many options. And you have the Trans-Mississippi. There's, It's usually more of a distraction, but there's some interesting shit you can do over there. There's so many great things, and it just captures so much about what I like about gaming that number one for me is the U.S. Civil War, Mark Simonich, GMT Games. So there we go. Now, to get this list going, we need to have a counter to that so right now it's number two but it's for right now it's gonna be harder to hard to top this now i could go with something easy like stratego or risk haven't played axes and allies assuming it wouldn't rank that high maybe it will it could be wrong uh but i thought i'd go with one that's a little bit more interesting and i've played it once but i got a pretty good grasp of the game to at least say that it is one of the worst war games I've ever played. Now, I know that this game is a cult following, and I know that a lot of people still like it to this day, but this is a 1980 Avalon Hill game called Titan. Now, Titan is kind of this arena brawler where you have all of these fantasy monsters and creatures, and you you move around this larger board kind of like a, a chess board. And then when you engage with your enemy, you move to this other board to carry out the battle. Now that sounds fantastic, but this game is full of empty promises. One of my favorite PlayStation 1 classics, Hidden Gems, is a game called Unholy War. If you've never played it, go get your buddies, sit down on the couch, play Unholy War, because that game succeeds where Titan fails. And on Holy War, you move around this larger strategic map, kind of like a chessboard. And when you engage in the enemy, you get in these really interesting, quick tactical engagements. And there's the keyword, which is quick. Because Titan is a slog and it takes forever. And just going once through the resolution of the little, like, engagement was enough for me to see that even with the interesting stuff going on in this game, I don't I don't need to see it. I don't need to carry out a bunch of tower battles to, to get a feel for this game. I get it. And like it doesn't reach that much resolution. And it's too bad because you can do like really cool shit in this game, if I remember correctly. Let's say you have a bunch of, I don't know, Minotaurs. I think Centaurs are Minotaurs in the game. Maybe they're not. Whatever. You can then take those Minotaurs and Centaurs and basically exchange them. I think you combine different combinations of creatures into cooler and better creatures. That's awesome. You have this economy of creatures to get badass creatures to go duke it out. But the problem is, is I'm playing a three-player game... And me and my buddy to the right get an engagement. We have to go to this tactical engagement. And like the third player is just sitting there. And it took forever to resolve. And these guys knew the game. And 
after playing around, I think we may have actually played a four-player game and one player was eliminated, which, uh, right, like player elimination these days is not in favor. And uh, so I play this at the very first kind of almost convention that I went to. It's it's a smaller held in a school gymnasium deal that happens in uh, Kansas City each year called Recruits. It's a great time. But that's where I played this. I was like, oh, this sounds outstanding. This sounds like Unholy War. We're going to move around. We're going to have this economy of buying creatures and getting newer, cooler shit. And uh, it just stayed on the table for way too long, which is saying something. Because I could play Bloody April for eight hours and not have a complaint. But man, Titan just was a slog. And... I walked away from that game saying, I don't even need to play you again. I would love to see someone take that game and streamline it. Because that concept of moving around in this larger board and then shrinking down to this tactical field is something that I haven't seen executed as well as I'd like it to be. They did that in New York 1776, but the battlefield was almost too simple and the engagement, there wasn't a lot of tactical decisions. So New York 1776 was a Worthington block game. You're moving around New York, and when you get engagements, you pick up all your blocks, and you move them to this battlefield. Well, the battlefield is left, middle, right, and there wasn't really much. It's basically just fire and resolve. I want to say until, like, a side didn't have any blocks left, which is fine. It wasn't bad, but there was no tactical feeling on this sideboard. Now, Titan has that, but it's also super boring. Just go play Unholy War. And have a much, much, much better time. So, I didn't. I, I feel like I didn't pick from the bottom of the barrel. But obviously, I don't have the warmest feelings for Titan. So, there we go. The boundaries are set. And it'll be our job over the next... Over the lifespan of this podcast to fill that in. So, please, tell me what games you want to see end up on this list. Ranked from top to bottom. Every single war game ever. Now, this may not make people happy, but I'm going to use the broadest definition of war game out there. I guess not the broadest. But basically, if it's classified as a war game on Board Game Geek, that's good enough for me. If it covers a historical conflict, or it's a sci-fi conflict, or a fantasy conflict... I'm fine with it. So yeah, for the purposes of this podcast, this list, Twilight Struggle, sure. Coin, absolutely. Not uh, Root, well, yeah, which would be Coin 2, Coin Part 2, Root. Those all make the list. So please, let me know what you want to hear about. I'll just keep plugging this list, and uh, if it's well-received, maybe we can do a couple games each each time. That means I'm going to have my homework cut out for me. Um, that means I'm going to play a lot more war games to uh, to populate this list, so I'll need everyone's help with that. Okay, that seems like a good place to leave off. Thanks for sitting with me through another episode. Uh, I do appreciate it. Uh, let's see some closing remarks, typical stuff. We're on Twitter, History Table Pod. Again, it's at History Table Pod. Gmail, questions, comments, concerns. War game you want to see ranked on insert clever title for the list. That's history table podcast at gmail.com for questions, concerns. 
History Table Podcast at gmail.com. Modern Board Game Geek, you can find me there. We have an Instagram. It's History Table Pod something. Maybe it's just Pod Podcast. You can find it if you search for it. All right, that's going to do it. I'll talk to you next time. Thanks. <laughs>